Chapter Nineteen of Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen Bacchus. Among all the maidens whom Jupiter honoured with his love, none was more beautiful than Semele, daughter of Cadmus and Harmonia. Cadmus was the brother of Europa, whom Jupiter, in the form of a white bull, carried on his back across the sea. The maiden's three brothers had been with her in the meadow, and had witnessed her strange departure, but knowing that it would be useless to attempt to catch the fleet animal, they hurried to their father, Agenor, and told him of the manner in which his favourite daughter had been spirited away. The old man was frenzied with grief, and bade his three sons to go in search of Europa, and not return until they had found her. The youths set out, accompanied by their mother, Telephassa, and spent many weary days in a fruitless search for the stolen maiden. At last Phoenix refused to go any further, and, not daring to return to his father, he remained in a land that was afterwards called in his honour Phoenicia. Silix, the second brother, grew weary of the hopeless quest, and settled in a country named from him, Sicilia. And finally Telephassa, exhausted by fatigue and grief, died, and Cadmus was left to continue the search alone. He kept doggedly on for many days, and when he reached the town of Delphi he consulted the oracle, hoping to find some clue to help him. To his surprise the oracle gave this ambiguous answer, "'Follow the cow and settle where she rests.' Cadmus left the temple, and before he had journeyed far he saw a cow walking leisurely in front of him. Judging this to be the animal intended to guide him, he followed her, and on the way was joined by a curious crowd who were eager to see where the absurd procession would finally stop. Some hoped that by accompanying the hero on his march they might meet with new adventures. The cow at last lay down in Boeotia, and here Cadmus founded the city of Thebes. To reward Cadmus for his loving search for Europa, Jupiter gave him in marriage the fair Harmonia, daughter of Mars and Venus. The child of this union was Semele, whom Jupiter wooed in the disguise of a mortal, but such was the maiden's pride that she would not listen to his pleading until he told her who he really was. Then her love was easily won, for no pride could be above yielding to the ruler of Olympus. Jupiter was very happy in the society of Semele, and went down to earth many times to visit her, but it was inevitable that Juno should notice his frequent absences, and should set about finding out where the charm lay that lured him so often to the earth. When she discovered her beautiful rival, she decided upon an ingenious method of punishing her, and accordingly took the form of Semele's old nurse, Beroe. By feigning a loving solicitude for her charge's welfare, she soon won the confidence of the unsuspecting maiden, and listened with well-concealed anger, while Semele talked of her lover and showed her pride in having won the affections of the greatest of gods. The nurse was evidently delighted at Semele's happiness, but seemed worried over the new suitor's identity, and now and then expressed a doubt as to whether he really was the great Jupiter. On questioning the maiden more closely, she assumed a virtuous indignation when Semele admitted that her lover always visited her in the disguise of a mortal, and that she had only his word as proof of his divinity. Hearing this, the old woman urged Semele to make sure that it was no impostor who was playing on her credulity and pricked the girl's pride by asking her why it was that Jupiter, if it were indeed he, 
should not honour her as he did the stately Juno by appearing before her in all his splendid majesty. Then the pretended nurse described the glory of Jupiter as it was seen by the dwellers in Olympus, and finally so worked upon Semele's pride and curiosity that the unsuspicious maiden promised to put her lover to the test. So when Jupiter came again, she begged him to grant her a favour, and the ruler of the gods, not knowing of Juno's wiles, readily promised to grant any request Semele might make. To further bind himself, he swore by the river Styx, the most terrible of all oaths. Then the maiden bade him return to Olympus, clothe himself in all his regal apparel, omitting no part of his terrible splendour, not even the dreaded thunderbolts, and having done this, returned to her, that she might know he was indeed the awful thunderer. Jupiter was dismayed at this request, for he knew that no mortal could endure the greatness of his glory. He begged Semele to ask another boon, but the maiden was obstinate, and insisted upon her request being granted. Sorrowfully, Jupiter returned to Olympus, and after robing himself in his fearful majesty, he dimmed the radiance wherever he could, wrapped about him the mildest lightning, and took in his hand the feeblest thunderbolt. To keep his promise he ascends and shrouds his awful brow in whirlwinds and in clouds, while all around, in terrible array, his thunders rattle and his lightnings play. Thus dreadfully adorned with horror bright, the illustrous god, descending from his height, came rushing on her in a storm of light. From Addison's Ovid, Metamorphoses, Book 3, line 302. But in spite of his attempt to lessen his splendour, even this mild glory so overwhelmed poor Semele that when Jupiter appeared before her, she dropped dead at his feet. In trying vainly to bring her back to life, Jupiter did not notice what havoc the lightning, that played about his head, was making in the palace. In a short time the whole place was reduced to ashes, and in the smouldering ruins the body of Semele was consumed. The only person who escaped uninjured was the infant son of Jupiter and Semele, the golden-haired Bacchus. Having rescued his son from the burning palace, Jupiter first entrusted him to his aunt Eno, who cared for him as tenderly as if he were her own child. But the jealous hatred of Juno was not satisfied with the death of Semele, and she tried to extend her vengeance to Bacchus, by sending the fury Tisiphone to goad Athamas, the husband of Eno, into madness. As king of Thebes, Athamas had always been a kind ruler, but when the frenzy, inspired by cruel Juno, took possession of him, he imagined that his wife and children were wild beasts, and attempted to kill them. He did succeed in slaying Laocus, but Eno and her other son, Melicertes, escaped from his murderous fury, and afterwards became deities of the ocean. Not daring to leave the infant Bacchus in such a household, and fearing the further persecutions of Juno, Jupiter took the boy to Mount Nyssa, where the nymphs, the Nysiades, guarded him faithfully. During his youth Bacchus was made god of wine and revels, and was entrusted to the tutorship of Silenus, one of the most famous of the satyrs. This jovial old man had a bald head, pointed ears, a fat red face, and a body that was half man and half goat. As he carried a wine-bag with him wherever he went, he was generally tipsy, and would have broken his neck long before reaching old age if he had tried to walk unsupported, but some of Bacchus's chosen band of followers always held him up on either side, or, when they themselves were unsteady, set him on an ass's back. Thus protected he roamed around with Bacchus, and taught him all the craft of wine-growing, and the making of choicest wine. 
the young god soon became a master of revels, and had a large train of followers composed of men and women, nymphs, fauns, and satyrs. They were usually crowned with ivy leaves, and were always drinking wine, eating grapes, singing and dancing. The most unruly among them were the Bacantes, who, though women, were often so crazed with wine and the excitement of their dancing that they committed such inhuman crimes as tearing the musician Orpheus to pieces. Wherever Bacchus travelled, and it was far and wide, he taught the people the art of cultivating grapes and making wine. He was always welcomed, and when they knew he was approaching, men, women, and children flocked to meet him and his merry company. Juno tried hard to check his triumphant progress, but she did not dare take his life for fear of Jupiter's wrath, so she afflicted him with a kind of madness that drove him forth a wanderer alone over the earth. He had many adventures during this unhappy period, and finally landed in Phrygia, where the goddess Rhea cured him and taught him her religious rites. After this he wandered in Asia and India, teaching the people the wonderful new art of making wine. When he returned to Greece he was welcomed everywhere until he reached his native city of Thebes, where his cousin Pentheus was king. When Pentheus heard that the people were flocking out of the gates to meet Bacchus and his revellers, he tried to stop the excited crowds and force them to return. In vain he pleaded, commanded, threatened. Men and women and even children were eager to join the revels and would not turn back. Then Pentheus sent some of his servants to seize Bacchus and bring him a prisoner to the city. Soon the messengers returned, but they had not succeeded in getting near the god, so great was the crowd that pressed eagerly around him. They had, however, captured one of his followers, and when they dragged their prisoner before the king, he stood in the presence of the angry monarch, without any sign of fear in his calm face. Pentheus commanded the man to tell what sort of revelry and rites were performed under the leadership of Bacchus, and threatened to put him instantly to death if he did not tell the truth. The prisoner smiled at the king's anger, and seemed quite undisturbed by the threats against his life. He refused to tell anything of the ceremonies attending the worship of Bacchus, but began calmly to relate his own story. He said that his name was Acetes of Myonia, and that he was a poor fisherman by birth, but had himself learned the pilot's art of steering by the stars. He had thus become master of a cruising vessel, and once, when he was near the island of Dia, he sent some of his men to shore for fresh water. They soon returned, bringing with them a youth whom they had found asleep in the forest, and had captured, hoping to obtain a large ransom for him, as the lad was surely some king's son, so haughty and regal was his bearing. When Acetes saw the youth, he begged his men not to force him on board the ship, for the pilot felt convinced that it was no mere mortal who stood so proudly before them, but the sailors would not listen to his advice, and thrust the youth roughly on board. Then Acetes refused to steer the ship, but the men only laughed and declared that they could pilot the craft as well as he. An angry discussion took place on the decks, and soon the quarrelling grew so loud that the captured youth, who had been gazing listlessly over the sea, turned to the wrangling crew and asked in what direction the ship was sailing. "'We will steer wherever you wish to go,' replied one of the men, with a wink at his companions. "'Then sail back to Naxos, for that is my home,' said the youth. The sailors promised to do so, but turned the ship towards Egypt, where they hoped to sell their prize for a large sum in gold. Acetes made several brave attempts to get possession of the helm and steer for Naxos, but the sailors struck him down and threatened to throw him overboard if he interfered in their plans. 
Soon the lad seemed to notice that the familiar shores were receding, and anxiously inquired if they were really sailing towards Naxos. He begged them not to ill-treat a friendless boy, but to let him return home in safety. Then the crew, weary of their pretence, told him brutally that he was being taken to Egypt to be sold as a slave, and that he could try his pretty speeches on his future master. The youth did not reply to these taunts, but looked calmly at the jeering sailors, and raised his hand above his head. Immediately the ship stopped, as if it had been suddenly rooted to the sea, and though the men pulled frantically at the oars, not an inch could the vessel move. Then, as in a dream, they saw ivy twining rapidly about the sails, and wrapping the oars in its strong tendrils. A vine with its heavy clusters of grapes clung to the mast and the sides of the ship. There was the delicious smell of crushed fruit in the air, and the fragrance of new-made wine. The sailors stared at the transformed ship, and at the captured youth, who now shook off his mask of simplicity, and appeared before them in all his godlike beauty. For it was no other than the divine Bacchus, whom they had derided and hoped to sell as a slave. The sound of flutes was heard all around him, and the shrill notes of the pipes. At the feet of Bacchus crouched tigers, lynxes, and panthers, and the god himself bore in his hand a staff wreathed with ivy. Then terror seized the trembling sailors, and they sprang madly over the side of the ship, but as soon as they touched the water they were changed into dolphins. Only Acetes was left standing on the deck before the smiling Bacchus, who bade him have no fear, but take the helm and steer straight for Naxos. The pilot gladly obeyed, and soon reached the desired port, where he left his ship, and became a follower of the god of wine. When Acetes finished this remarkable story, King Pentheus swore that not a word of it was true, and ordered his prisoner to be taken away at once and executed. The soldiers threw Acetes into a jungle, but while the preparations for his execution were being made, his chains suddenly dropped off, and his prison doors flew open. When the jailers came to lead him to his death, he was nowhere to be found. Meanwhile the king had learned that the people were thronging around Bacchus on the Cithyron mountains just outside the city, and were eagerly joining in all the joyous rites that attended the worship of the god of wine. The shouts of the Bacchanals filled the air, and in spite of his anger against them, Pentheus was curious to see what these ceremonies were that occasioned such roisterous mirth, so he disguised himself as a beggar, and joined the shouting crowd that surrounded Bacchus and his followers. The noisiest of the revellers were the Bacchantes, who danced and sang in a very frenzy of excitement as they tossed their ivy-wreaths into the air, and poured the red wine recklessly upon the ground. When this group, flushed with wine and half-clad, whirled madly toward him, the king was astonished to see among them his own mother, Agave, as he leaned nearer to the shouting dancers, wondering how his mother came to join in such orgies, she suddenly saw him, and pointing a finger at his shrinking figure, cried, "'There is the monster who prowls in our woods. Come on, sisters, I will be the first to strike the wild boar.' Blinded by the madness that Bacchus had purposely inspired, she rushed upon the terrified king, followed by the crowd of half-crazed Bacchantes. In vain did Pentheus cry out that he was her son. Agave and her companions trampled him down in their fierce onslaught, and in a moment tore him to pieces. Thus was the worship of Bacchus established in Greece. The spot that the god of wine loved best was the island of Naxos, and here he spent much of his time when he was not wandering over the earth to teach the art of making wine. 
One day Bacchus was walking on the seashore with his ivy-crowned company, who followed him, singing and dancing to the music of their shrill pipes. As they neared a spot where the rocks rise like a cliff above the water's edge, they discovered a maiden sitting on the white sand. This was Ariadne, who had been deserted by her lover Theseus, and left to pine away alone on the island. For days Ariadne had sat looking mournfully out over the sea, and now when Bacchus, with his joyous group of revellers, suddenly broke in upon the silence of her solitude, she was frightened by the sight of so many strangers. Bacchus soothed her fears, and in a short time so won the maiden's confidence that he persuaded her to become his wife. Ariadne was quite content to stay on the island with such a merry company, and if she ever felt any regret over the faithless Theseus, it was soon forgotten in the joy of the wedding celebrations, which lasted for several days. As a marriage gift, Bacchus placed on Ariadne's white forehead a crown adorned with seven glittering stars, but, wonderful as it was, it did not eclipse the beauty of the wearer. The happiness of the newly wedded pair did not last long, however, for, in a few months, Ariadne sickened and died. After her death, Bacchus left the island, and did not return there for many years, but before he set sail he took Ariadne's crown, and threw it up into the sky, where it forms a brilliant constellation known as Corona. One day Silenius fell asleep in the forest, and his companions, believing him safe for a while, went away and left him propped up against a tree with his wine-bag at his side. Here he was found by some peasants, who were subjects of Midas, king of Lydia. The rustics watched the sleeping Silenius for a long time, wondering who he might be. At length the old man woke up, and after rubbing his eyes, asked the staring peasants where he was. As he received no answer to his question, Silenius motioned to the rustics to help him up, and then started to hunt for Bacchus and his lost companions. Seeing him unable to walk, the men led him to the court of King Midas, who, as soon as he saw the wanderer's jolly red face and his body, half goat and half man, knew at once that it was Silenius, the tutor of Bacchus. This Midas was the same king who had challenged Apollo to compete in the musical contest with Pan, and, because of his unfair decision, had been cursed with ass's ears by the offended god. The fact that Silenius had ears unlike the average mortal may have made King Midas feel a bit more sympathy for the old man's distress, but whatever the reason might be, he entertained Silenius royally for ten days, and then led him back to his pupil, who had been wondering at his long absence. Delighted to have Silenius return to him unharmed, Bacchus promised to give the king any reward he might name, and Midas, being very avaricious, asked the god to grant that all that he touched should turn into gold. Bacchus had hoped that Midas would desire a better gift than this, but having made a promise, the god was ready to fulfil it, and he therefore assured the king that his wish was granted. Midas, overjoyed at his good fortune, hastened back to his palace, and on the way he hesitatingly tried his new power. He touched some leaves that hung from the trees nearby, and immediately they became golden. He took up a stone from the roadway, and it turned into a gold in his hand. He plucked an apple, and in a moment it looked like one of the golden fruit from the garden of the Hesperides. Midas was almost beside himself with joy, and as soon as he reached his palace he began at once to turn all its furnishings into gold. He was so delighted with this wonderful gift that he felt no desire to eat or to drink or rest, but at last he grew a little weary of turning things into gold, and, being hungry, sat down at his well-filled table. He took great pleasure in seeing the cloth and the cups and the plates change as everything else had done at his touch, but to his great amazement and horror 
he also found that the bread he took in his hand, the food that touched his lips, turned into hard, unyielding gold. He tried to drink from the shining cups, but the wine in his mouth became melted gold. Then Midas knew the real meaning of his magic touch, and realised sorrowfully that until it was taken away he would slowly starve in the midst of his great wealth. Already he hated his gift, and longed for some way to divest himself of his ill-fated power. He cried aloud to Bacchus for help, but no answer came to his prayers. Again he besought the god, and this time acknowledged his avarice, and lamented the greed that had led him to ask for the gift of the golden touch. Bacchus heard his prayers, and, believing him truly repentant, commanded him to go to the river Pactolus, trace the stream to its source, and plunge his head and body into the purifying water. In this way he would cleanse himself of his fault and its punishment. Midas did as he was instructed, and came away from the river a wiser and happier, though a poorer, man. If at any time he was ever tempted to regret his lost gift, he had only to look into the river at the glittering golden sand on the bed of the stream, for where the king had stood the sand was changed into gold, and so it has remained to this very day. End of chapter 19